I'm jealous of Jeff. Uh, being able to go to the, uh, over to Israel and tour all those sites must be incredible. And just thank you. On behalf of him, thank you for giving that opportunity. I, I know it's going to really enhance him and his depth of preaching and love for God and his word and his love for you all. And I've been, uh, so Harvest Bible Chapel Ashburn, today is our fifth Sunday. Um, so we meet at 5 p.m. on Sundays. So uh, that's why I'm able to be here this morning. <clears throat> you know, and, and I've been preaching through Philippians, and it starts off with this phrase right at the beginning. He says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Um, that's Harvest Bible Chapel Fairfax to us. You guys have been a tireless uh, support for us of consistent love and prayer. The, the, the support that I get from your pastor, the love that I get from Jeff, the encouragement and prayer uh, from your elders, from just the different people that I've been able to meet uh, part of your group. And I know that you guys have been praying for us and b- behind us, and we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Harvest Bible Chapel Fairfax. So thank you so much for how you're pouring into this church and out of that, establishing and planting other, other churches. That's the mission. You know, and it's actually something that has attracted me to Harvest and to be a part of Harvest. And we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2. So if you've got your Bible, open up to that point. And we've got some ushers and some extra Bibles. So if you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand and they will bring you a Bible so that everybody can be looking at God's Word together. Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to start at verse 1. And like I was saying, one of the things that attracted me to Harvest, to plant a Harvest Bible chapel... Uh, is one of the distinctives of the Great Commission Collective, you know, our international family of churches that we're a part of, and that is intentional disciple-making. We want to be intentional about disciple-making, not something that happens on the side or by accident, but something we're really going to go after. Because Jesus commanded us to go and make disciples. Jesus told his disciples, just as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. We want to be intentional about disciple making. That, that's awesome. You know what's exciting about it as well, as well? And I'm going to say it for the 101st time. I'm sure you guys have heard it many times before. Jesus promised that he's going to build his church. In other words, this effort of making disciples and expanding the kingdom of God, we know how it ends. He's going to do it. He's going to establish his church. And that verse goes on to say that even the gates of hell will not stand against it. The church is not meant to be this shelter with with big high walls where we all hide. You know, like in the Lord of the Rings with the helms deep. You know, it's like we're just going to hide and hope that they can't get in and, and get us. The church is meant to be on offense, even storming the gates of hell. Now, I know without knowing Fairfax that there are forms of hell right around this community in people's hearts, in people's homes, in communities, neighborhoods, lives, lifestyles, all these kind of things, forms of hell. Harvest Fairfax is meant to take that on. It is absolutely meant to take it on. And it's so encouraging to see God at work in that video we just saw. And I love, I've been watching the 100 stories that have been coming out of Harvest Fairfax. God is working. God is working and he's building his church. It's so great. I think the question though for each of us is whether I'm going to be a part of that, personally, individually. In other words, Jesus has promised he is going to build his church. He's going to do it. But am I going to be a part of that? Or am I just going to be a spectator that just watches from the sidelines? And I think this passage calls out something for us. 
And that is this idea of unity through humility. Unity through personal humility. And that's, we're going to walk through this passage. And I just want to encourage you guys in, in imagining this, is that the power of the church, when it is unified together, is an unstoppable force. The gates of hell will not stand against it. This is an unstoppable force. But am I going to be a part of that? Or am I just going to be a spectator that's standing on the sides watching to see what happens? Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Let me just open in prayer here. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to bring your word. Lord, I pray that your truth would be magnified. Lord, I pray that your spirit would open hearts and minds, that it would uh, bring conviction where it's appropriate. Lord, and that you would be glorified. Lord, and that people that are in this room, that maybe they're sitting on the sidelines for whatever reason it might be, Father, that they would step in and jump into the work that you're doing in building your kingdom and making disciples all for the glory of God. And we thank you that we can look forward in hope that this is going to be accomplished. We don't know tomorrow. We don't know next week, but we know how it ends. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 1, and Paul opens up with an introduction to his idea. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by, and he's about to give us the big idea here, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one Mind. There is a unity there that goes beyond just simple peace. There is a unity in purpose, in direction, a unity in love. It's, in other words, it's just much more than, I mean, I think in most neighborhoods, like in my neighborhood, you don't see a lot of fighting that's going on. It looks like a peaceful neighborhood. But nobody knows anybody. Nobody is re- relating to one another. There's peace. But there isn't the kind of unity he's talking about here. Within the church, there should be the same mind, the same love, all pulling in one direction. In verse 1, he gives several uh, statements uh, that are, are calling them and encouraging them to that purpose of unity. And it reminds me of like the leading questions that you might give to a child. You know, it's like your kids are fighting and you say to one of them, do you want to be nice to your brother? Yes. Do you want your brother to be nice to you? Yes. Okay. So this. And Paul's the same kind of idea. You get any encouragement from Jesus Christ? Any kind of comfort felt from the love of God and from the church? Any, is, it, is it awesome that we get to fellowship in the work of the, of the Spirit? Any affection? Any, any sympathy? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Have the same love. Unity. Unity and purpose for the purpose, for for where we're headed. And and so then it gets into, the. I think, from then on, verse 3, 
really the keys to that. So he starts to describe what that unity would look like. So keys to unity in the church. And I want to go back to to that earlier idea I mentioned before we jump into the first one. And that, you know, we need to remember that a lot of times uh, unity in the church is extremely hard. It can be hard. It can be difficult to get along with other people. And why is it often hard? And I think the reason that it's often hard is because we forget these keys. We forget these keys to unity and how it's possible to have true Christian unity. So number one, we need to set aside my agenda. I need to set aside my agenda. Verse three says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And he's got both a negative and a positive statement on the same idea here. He's saying, don't be selfish, uh, you know, ambitiously selfish, try to advance yourself for, for your own purpose. Don't be conceited. Instead, positively, consider others more significant than yourselves. So he gives a pro and a, and a, con, a, a positive and a negative there. And I think the reason he does that is to give us real clear clarity on what he's talking about here. Because, you know, when it comes to selfish ambition and conceit, I think that's the kind of thing that's really easy to spot, right? I mean, you've had coworkers maybe or other people that you've worked with in the past. I mean, the conceited, selfishly ambitious kind of people, you can spot them, right? It's like it's, they, they show themselves very, very quickly. It's like that guy is completely conceited. It's all about him. What he wants to do is what rules, But the truth is, is it's hard to see in ourselves, and that's typically the way pride works, is that pride is extremely obvious to the people around us and less obvious to us, whereas most other sins, we know we've done it. We know in our mind, usually, that we've committed that sin. But being conceited, selfishly ambitious, it's hard to see. So I think he gives the other side of this to help give clarity to it. So you might say, well, I don't have a, I'm not one of those selfishly ambitious people. I'm not conceited. Well, do you Count others more significant than yourself? You know, I, I don't think of myself as selfishly ambitious. But I have to admit that a lot of times I don't really count others more significant than myself. So I think the truth is that oftentimes I am very conceited because of that. <clears throat> It reminds me of, uh, you know, what a, a fantastic assistant, right? What, an awesome assistant. What's the job of an awesome assistant? It's to make their boss successful. Their whole job is wrapped up in just helping the boss to be successful. And I got my, my vocational start working in political campaigns. And the job of all the staff, and I'm sure it's true on the Hill, uh, we've got a lot of leaders in Washington, D.C., and the job of the staff is to make the boss look good to help them to be successful, to make sure they've got everything they need in order to do their job well. And and that's what an assistant does really well. And I think that's a great picture for us. It's like that guy, that girl, that woman, that person, whoever it is around me in my small group, they are more significant than me. And so I want to do what I can to help them to be successful in life and whatever it might be. Another way to think about it is that it's like you have a destination in mind. 
the conceited person has the destination of self-exaltation. Where I'm trying to head is so that I look great, so that I grow, so that I'm significant. But that is completely the opposite of the message that, that Paul gives them earlier in the chapter, where he says, whether I live or whether I die, my purpose is to exalt Jesus Christ with my life and my body. In other words, where is Paul headed in his life? What's his goal in life? Is to exalt Jesus Christ. If your purpose and goal in life is to exalt yourself, you can't, you can't have both of those two. You can't have the destination of self-exaltation and exalt Christ. It can't work. And so that's why I think this is fundamentally important to our mission as a community and the purpose that we have to exalt the name of Jesus Christ is I have to consider others more important than myself and set my agenda aside. You know, and, and again, follow the example of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Every person gets grime and junk and, you know, gunk in their lives, and they need their feet washed from time to time. We need somebody else to humble themselves and to serve us sometimes. And Jesus Christ did that on behalf of his disciples to show them this picture. When the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, can humble himself to the lowest job to serve his disciples, then I most certainly can do that as well. So I need to set aside my agenda, consider others more significant than myself. And then another key to unity is that I need to care about the interests of others. Verse 4 says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so when he says, look at their interests, this is like knowing and caring, right? In other words, you don't just look at somebody, like I'm looking at all you guys, but I don't know you. It's, it's kind of like looking at your bank account balance. It's like, is your money an interest of yours? Yes. Yeah, it's an interest of mine. I care about what's in my bank account, so I check my balance. I care about what's in my bank account. He's saying, not only look at your interests, but also look at the interests of others. And I appreciate the fact that he, he doesn't say to not look at your interests. He's, say, he's not saying you don't look at your interests. He's saying to look at others' interests as well. I need to know what matters to them. I need to know what is important to them. Again, I think we're really good at knowing our own interests. We've been doing that since we were little kids. We know what matters to us. We know what we care about. We know what we want. We know what's hurting. We know what would help the hurting. We know, I mean, all those kinds of things. We're very aware of our own interests, typically. But he's saying, don't just look at your interests. Also look at the interests of others. And I would encourage you, think about the people that are around you in this church. Think about the people that are in your small group. Do you know their interests? Do you know what they need? You know, something we did, uh, I think it was about two months ago, that was super helpful for us at Harvest Ashburn in our small groups is we just asked one another, what's the best way to encourage you? You know, it's like, or, you know, another flip of that would be, when's a common time that you find yourself down? Like, it's a hard time for you. Like, what, when does that typically happen? And, 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 and how can you get encouragement? And I, so I shared with some of the guys, you know, some of the ways that, you know, this is a common way that I'm typically get down. It's, it happens to me uh, often. Um, and they've remembered that. And they've watched for those times, and they've shot me text messages and phone calls and, and prayed for me and, and given me encouragement. They're remembering what's 
in my interest. And it's been really cool to see how God has worked. Now, sometimes, though, you got to realize that, right, sometimes my interests might conflict with somebody else's interests. And that's really where it gets hard, right? I mean, we're ready to serve anybody as long as it doesn't hurt us. That's easy. It's hard to serve the interests of somebody else if their interests conflict with my interests, right? If I serve their interests, it might hurt me. And I think a great example of this is the human body. The Bible compares the church to a human body. We're an organism where Jesus Christ is the head. There's every one of us has a part and a role. But if a rock were to come flying at me, if JT grabbed a rock and he's like, I'm going to nail Rich in the head with a, with a rock. And I don't know if anybody's seen JT throw a football, but um, he's a pretty good arm. I'm going to use my hand to protect my head. Is that bad for my hand? Yeah. It's going to be bad for my hand. But it's going to be a lot worse for the hole if that rock hits me in the head. Right? So when we're looking at the interests of others and we're thinking of ourselves as a body, then we're not just saying, I need to protect myself because I'm the hand and this body can't can't go forward unless the hand is completely healthy. You know, lots of people have died with very healthy hands. (laughs) We want to live, and we want to be ready. It's like, okay, this is going to hurt me, and that's okay, because it's better for the whole. And the truth is, is that I might protect myself with my hand and bruise my hand really badly, and my hand will hurt, but it's actually better for my hand to be hurt than for my head to get hit by a rock, right? Now, there's a flip of that. Sometimes what's in the interest of others isn't going to hurt me, but it's actually going to hurt them. That sometimes is going to be the case too. And it's actually in their best interest for the glory of God to hurt them. And I'm thinking about, you know, oftentimes maybe with sin, right? If, if there is ongoing sin in someone's life, sometimes we have to confront that as a, as a brother, as a sister in Christ in love, not for ourselves, but for them and for their glory. And, and that reminds me of, um, you know, over the last couple of years, this, the, the, the Me Too movement has just been incredible to see what's happened. You know, and here you've got these situations, you know, in, in Hollywood and in, in the media and in politics and some in the church and other places of power where you had significantly powerful men that were taking advantage of vulnerable women. And, and, and typically in all those circumstances, there were people around who knew it was happening. They knew about it. And that's one of the things that's just so horrible about it. In other words, they, they saw powerful person taking advantage of vulnerable weak person because of their positions, you know, where they were in power. And that person made a judgment. They didn't, I'm sure they didn't condone it. I'm sure they wished it didn't happen. But they made a judgment that it's better for us, it's better for my career, it's better for where we're trying to go to hide that and keep it a secret and try to push it down. That's a complete lie and it's a complete distortion of the the gospel. In other words, there should not be a form of unity that protects wrongdoing, right? That, That should not be the case. Um, We should not be afraid of the light of truth. Jesus Christ is the hope. The gospel is the hope. And by saying it's better to hide that and keep it hidden from people, 
In saying that, you're denying the truth of the gospel and what our mission is, right? So sometimes it might hurt us, sometimes it might hurt them, but we need to be aware and know the interests of others. And finally, the key to you, the final key to unity, excuse me, is we need to be inspired by the humility of Jesus. Be inspired by the humility of Jesus. You know, Jesus is our ultimate example of humility. Verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's saying, think this way. This is the way I want your mind to think. Verse 6, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, this, this passage is just absolutely loaded with huge Christological, theological truths about the Trinity and Jesus Christ. And, and I would love to dig deeply into them, but I want to just kind of uh, hopefully peel back some of it to understand it because to really understand what Jesus Christ did for us is to really understand the idea here, which is to follow his example in humility. So when he says, though he was in the form of God, the Greek word for that form is, is essence. Uh, Jesus' es- essence, his his character, his, his, his power, uh, what he was like, his essence was the same as the Father. He did not count equality with, thing, with God a thing to be grasped means he didn't, like, whip out the God card. He had every right to not go to the cross, every right to not go to the cross. He not only was his creator, not only is, is the, the thing of all things, the Alpha and the Omega, all that there is, but he also lived a perfect life. He didn't deserve it. He didn't, he didn't call on that at all. Instead, in verse 7, this is what he did. He emptied himself, which means that he set down his rank. He set down his right as God. And he took on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. That's humility. And, it, and you know what? It, it reminds me of motherhood. Um, this is what mothers do. Um, as I was talking through this passage with my wife, and she was telling me, it's like, and I, you know, I have no concept. It's like there's another human being that's taking over your body. I mean, just completely take of your body. And, and it's a complete, total sacrifice. Um, and it's super common that, that moms are thinking completely about the interests of others and, and putting their children ahead of themselves. And that's, that's what motherhood largely is about. Jesus Christ humbled himself in that same kind of way. And in the same way that a mom humbles herself for a child in order for the child to grow, right? It's the same thing for us. Jesus humbled himself so that I can grow, so that I can be with Jesus, so I can grow and be with him. And in verse 8, he says, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I think it's important here to realize that what Jesus did, he says he humbled himself. How did he humble himself? It says, by obedience. You know, humility isn't just modesty or having a lowly attitude. Humility is marked by obedience. Humility is saying that on the org chart, big org chart in the universe, God's at the top of the org chart. I'm not. 
And I think pride is saying there's the org chart in the universe, and there's God, and right over here on the left, that's me. Or maybe sometimes I'm a little ahead of him. He reports to me on matters of money and job and how I spend my time. Uh, I'll let God report to me and tell me what to do on, you know, okay, I'll come on Sundays or whatever. You get the idea. In other words, I have to humble myself before him. And when I humble myself, it looks like obedience. That's what Jesus did for us. Am I in charge or is it God in charge? That reminds me, my my, uh, six-year-old daughter, when she was just first talking, uh, my wife remembers this time that she was sitting in her high chair uh, in the kitchen, and she just declared out, she said, Ali boss, Ali in charge. And, you know, it's like right out of the mouth of a kid. And that's us. That's us so often. Anytime we disobey God's instruction to us, we're saying, I'm the boss. I'm in charge. Jesus was obedient, and he wasn't just obedient to a basic command. He was obedient even to the point of death, even to death on a cross, a slow and terrible and painful death. And then verse, verses 5 through 7, he said for, or excuse me, you know, when you think about that sacrifice that he made, it reminds me of Romans 5, 7 through 8. It says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. I, I don't doubt that any mom in this room would lay their life down for their child. You know, any father in this room, um, I, I believe that, no, I don't doubt that many of you would say, yeah, I'll, I'll sacrifice myself on behalf of my close friend. But he's saying that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. I wouldn't even think about laying my life down for an enemy. But that's what Jesus Christ did on our behalf. You know, at the moment that I hated him the most is the moment that he loved me the most. And that should inspire us to humility. If Jesus Christ can do that on my behalf, a sinner lost in need of a Savior, then I can do that on behalf of my brother and sister here at Harvest Fairfax. We just set aside our personal agendas. We need to look and care about the interests of others And we need to be inspired by the humility of Jesus. A church that is unified like this is an unstoppable force of God's kingdom. And you get to be a part of it. You get to be a part of that. And you have seen God work at Harvest Fairfax. He is doing it. He is doing what he promised he would do. And we get to be a part of that. And I think, again, the question is, am I going to be on the sidelines? Am I going to be a spectator that's just watching God work from a distance? Or am I going to be right there in the middle of it? You can be right there in the middle of it if you have this kind of unity. And I think it starts with each and every one of us to be committed to this kind of unity in real, true humility. And I love how Paul concludes this section. You know, when he's just... You know, meditating on the glory of what Jesus has done for them. He can't help but worship. In verse 9, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus is worth every bit of our praise. He is, he is worth every bit of our obedience. 
every bit of my sacrifice. He is worth that and way more. It says that every knee will bow. In heaven, all the angels, all the spiritual beings in heaven will bow. On earth, all human beings throughout history will bow. And under the earth, all the satanic demonic world will bow. And it says every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the future. There's not going to be a person, an individual of any kind that will not be bowing to Jesus Christ and exalting him as Lord. That's where we're headed. The question is, is am I going to be a relevant part of that in the meantime? Am I going to exalt him starting right now with my life and letting his name be the name that's above every name? Or am I just going to watch it from the sidelines and just see what happens and someday sadly have to be there at that point and bow before him right at the end? Let's be a part of that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father, we approach you right now because of the work of Jesus Christ. And there is so much emphasis in the American church for personal relationship with you. And that is an awesome thing. But you also have called us into your community. Lord, you have made it eminently clear in your word that your mission works through your church. That you are um, furthering your agenda and in everything that you're doing through your ch- local church. We are a body. We are a family. You call us a household of God, of the living God. Lord, I, I, I pray that we would each be a part of that, God. I pray that we would not live on just the things that you've done in the past, but that we would look forward to the things that you're going to do into the future as well. Help us to praise you and glorify for seeing you at work through these 100 stories, but help us look forward expectantly to the ways you're going to work in the future. Because God, you know, there are a lot of places around this community that we could describe as hell. Lord, in people's lives, in their families, and in their hearts, Lord, they need your rescue, God, and we want to be a church that is storming those gates for your glory and expanding your kingdom. And so now we reflect again on who you are as our Lamb of God. In Jesus' name, amen.